Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We are in the book of Esther this morning, and our notes are going to be the Bible again. If you need a Bible, we have some blue Bibles in the back um, if you want to follow along. Um, So if you need one of those, go ahead and raise your hand, and someone will be along. And if you don't, that's all right. You can go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to Esther. If you hit the book of Job, just go the book right before that, um, and that's Esther. And if you have a device, I'm pretty sure you can just search Esther. Um, Greg did an entire overview of the book last week, and for the rest of the month, we're going to be looking at the practicals, the practical application of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Before we get into that, though, I want to open up to Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Now, Jeremiah is after Esther in your Bible, but Jeremiah was written before Esther. So it's just kind of the way that it was organized in the scripture. Jeremiah is after Esther in your Bible, so if you're looking for it, you can flip forward a little bit. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. And this is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Why would I begin the book of Esther with Jeremiah 29? Well, Jeremiah 29 is the instruction from the Lord to his people who who were being exiled on how to live in their new cities. So as God's people, they were driven out of Jerusalem into foreign lands, and they were dispersed all over the place. And as exiles, before, as they were going, Jeremiah wrote some instructions from God on how they were expected to live in their new cities. They were going to be in unfamiliar places with unfamiliar landmarks and unfamiliar leaders. In Jerusalem, if someone had an idol, they would probably destroy that idol. But if they were, I don't know, in the middle of Turkey and they weren't in God's land, there's a different way to go about that. So they, had, they were in unfamiliar places, unfamiliar landmarks, unfamiliar leaders, and they were expected to live a certain way as though they were still God's people. And so God gave them instructions on how to live, how to live as his people, not in the promised land. And that's true today. That's true for us today. That where we live does not change who we are. Where we live does not change who we are. God's people were not cut off from the family because they were no longer in the house. And so there were instructions for them to live. And here were the instructions from God. Number one, settle in to where you're being dispersed. Settle in to where you're being dispersed. He said, build houses and live in them. 
plant gardens and eat from them. I don't know if anyone's planted a garden and got the fruit of that garden before, but it takes a little bit of time to get there. I don't know if anyone's built a house with their bare hands uh, like a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, but that would take a long time, right? So God wanted them to settle into where they were being dispersed. Wherever God's people were sent, they were expected to make it their new home. The second thing is that they were supposed to have, have families in these new cities and to have grandkids in these new cities. Jeremiah was showing them that their exile was probably going to be a little bit. And so not only make it a new home, but make roots. Dig down. Make roots in the new cities that you go. And then the last thing is that they were expected to seek to do good to the new city that they lived in with sacrificial love. That's what he said. Seek the welfare of the cities that you're going, and their welfare will be your welfare. God's people were expected to make the new cities where they were sent better because they were going. They were expected to pray for their new cities to prosper, and they were expected to enjoy the prosperity and the good done to the city. As a Jewish exile, there were standards to live by. You were expected to set roots down deep and to make that place better. So what does it have to do with Esther? Well, we learned last week that Esther took place after the exile. God allowed the Persian Empire to destroy Babylon, and then the Persians gave permission for all of God's people to return to their homeland. But there were still millions of of God's people who stayed in the cities where they had built homes and had families and had done good to the city, and so there was a sense of ownership of these new places where they lived. And so they stayed. And Esther is a book that's post-exile, but those who were living outside of Jerusalem were were still operating under the same standards as though they were exiles. And so they were building houses and having families and doing good to the city. Where we catch up in the story of Esther, she is in Susa, which is the capital of the empire, the capital of the entire empire of Persia. And she and Mordecai were expected to live according to these exile standards. Okay, so that's why I started there. But what does Jeremiah 29 have to do with us this morning? Well, one of the ways that Christians are described in the New Testament is that we are sojourners in exiles too. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Just like God's people were not living in their homes, we as believers are not living in our permanent home either. In the early church, believers would say things like, we are not of this world. The world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And Jesus had no home. But he had given all believers a new permanent home in heaven. And Peter means to teach that Christians are to see their lives as citizens of the kingdom of God first. Our first home is heaven. And the transformation made through Christ is so radical for us that our hometown has changed. It's not Worcester anymore. It's not Wayne County, but it's heaven. 
And so, as Christians, we have the same tension that God's people had during their exile. We live in a place right now that's not our home. We know that we're going to be in heaven for eternity, but we live on earth right now. And so we're here, and we will be here on earth until we are united back to God. And so there's something that we're supposed to do. When Jesus ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were staring into the clouds, waiting for him to return. And a couple of angels came to the disciples, and they were like, hey guys, okay, Jesus will come back one day, but there is work to be done. So don't be staring at the clouds. Live your life. Live your life. And it actually says in Acts chapter 1 that they were released from their stupor. They were just like staring like that. Like, is this what we do now till Jesus comes back? And these angels had to come to them and say, no, it's time to do the work. And so there's the tension. Eternity with Jesus is what we long for and where we want to be. But we have lives and responsibilities and people who depend on us on earth right now. So Jeremiah 29 has everything to do with us because we're called to live as exiles on earth. And how do we do that? We dig into the places that we are. And if God allows us, we have families. And we do well to the cities that we're in. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the practicals of exile living in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and learn how we're we are able to live as exiles ourselves in a place that is not our home. But before we get into the practicals, it's really important to do a quick recap. I'm going to do this as fast as I can. A quick recap on the whole story of Esther because it's a little bit of a unique story. And I'll say this, if you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to listen to the message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Greg's message from last week. It's on our podcast. Um, It's on the website. But he did an entire overview of the whole book. Um, and, and it's really important to see, for, for us to see the practicals, to know how the story ends. Um, so I would, I would encourage you to do that just for the benefit of the rest of the month of May. But I'm going to do a quick recap here. Seventy-ish years after the exile, Cyrus, the king of Persia, came in and took back Jerusalem from the Babylonians and wrote a decree that all Jewish people were allowed to come out of exile and go back to Jerusalem. And just as I mentioned earlier, some people stayed because they had built homes and had families and were doing good to their city. And so they took ownership of where they were. And so some people stayed. And that's what we have with Esther. She is in Susa, the capital city of Persia, which is the capital of the entire empire. And there's four main characters that we see in the story of Esther. Um, King Ahasuerus, who's the king of Persia this time. Esther. Mordecai and Haman. We pick up in the story where King Ahasuerus, who was the king over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. I want you guys to know how big the empire of Persia was. They had 127 provinces all the way from India to Ethiopia. It's a massive, massive, massive empire. And so the king had two parties to show off his empire. One of them lasted 180 days, and King Ahasuerus wanted to parade his wife around at the end of the first party, and Queen Vashti refused, 
And so he renounced her. And after he renounced his queen, he threw a a countrywide beauty pageant to find a new queen. And that queen that was chosen is Esther. Now, Esther was a young Jewish girl and also the cousin and adopted daughter of Mordecai. After Esther was chosen as queen, Mordecai somehow became an official for the king, and Mordecai heard of a plot to kill the king. Now, Mordecai reported this plot uh, to Esther, and Esther reported it to the king in the name of Mordecai, and the king honored him by recording Mordecai in the book of the Chronicles of the King. Now, it's a really important piece because that comes into play later on. Now, the king obviously couldn't keep those officials who were trying to kill him, so he needed to replace those men, and he did so with Haman. We learned last week Haman was a very evil man. Haman was evil, but it was hidden for the king for a little while. It was hidden from the king, and so he couldn't see it, and so he, he actually gave Haman a lot of power, and Haman used it for evil himself. In the midst of all this, Mordecai became Haman's arch enemy because Mordecai would not bow to Haman as he was promoted. And Haman just basically got vindictive towards Mordecai for the rest of his life. Because he wouldn't worship Haman, Haman plots. This is crazy. This is is the most crazy retaliation. Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Haman plots to kill Mordecai and all of his people in all of the land. I mean, that is some anger. And the people of Mordecai were God's people, the Jewish people who had been dispersed through Persia. And so, because of the power that he had that had been given to him from the king, Haman manipulated the king to sign an edict to eradicate all of the Jewish people in all 127 provinces of Persia. And they all got word of this edict that on one specific day, all men, women, and children were going to be executed. And so this is, they're in dire need. The people of God are now, by law, going to be executed by the Persian Empire. So Mordecai convinces Esther to use her status as queen to approach the king about this edict and save save her people. Now, this was heroic from Esther because anyone, including the queen, who approached the king without explicit permission was put to death by law. So Esther kind of devises this plan, and he invites King Ahasuerus and Haman to two parties of her own. Um, In the meantime, Haman... uh, has saved his particular vengeance for Mordecai for something extremely evil. Greg talked about last week, he built a 75-foot pole with a spike on the top of it, and he wanted to impale Mordecai for all to see that if you defy me, this will be your fate. And so he, is, he has actually built this pole, and he's ready to tell King Ahasuerus about it. And right as he's about to do that, The king remembers that Mordecai saved his life and made Haman parade Mordecai around the city for his his good work to him. It's just an amazing, it's it's a funny thing that happens. 
Haman's about to walk into the, into the king's chambers and say, hey, I got this plan for Mordecai. And right as he's about to say that, the king's like, hey, you need to parade Mordecai around. And so um, that happens. Haman's not very happy about that. Mordecai kind of gets the, the last laugh there. Later, at Esther's parties, she reveals Haman's plot to kill the king, or uh, Haman's plot to kill Mordecai to the king, and the king decides to impale Haman on the pole himself as a dramatic reversal. Haman built this pole for Mordecai, and the king put Haman on it. Now, the next part is tricky because it, it seems like God's people were saved, but a king's edict could not be reversed. If it was sealed, there was nothing you could do to change it. So the king wrote a counter decree that the Jewish people were allowed to defend themselves from their attackers. And with the help of the Lord, God's people prevailed against their enemies. Esther and Mordecai prosper. Mordecai is promoted to second in command. And then they establish a feast of Purim to remember how God saved them from Haman and his family. And that's the book of Esther. That's the book of Esther. Esther is about two displaced exiles who used their positions to get involved. And God used them for the saving of his people. So I'm going to focus today on how God's people can live as exiles today. The first thing is that we are to seek the welfare of our city. We're supposed to seek the welfare of our city. That's a key piece to living in a new city for God's people. It was the expectation, the standard for an exile, that they were supposed to make their city better because they were there. Now this instruction could have been anything because God's people are dispersed into new lands, into new cities. The instruction could have been rebel against your city. It could have been insulate yourself and don't get involved in your city. It could have been try to usurp the power in your city. But instead, God calls his people to be good citizens wherever they are. And not only to be good citizens, but to seek the welfare of the city. Now to seek the welfare of something is an active verb. Seeking infers that you are actively involved in the outcome. So you're not looking for someone else to accomplish the welfare for you. The goal is that you are working to make the city better yourself. And this is the expectation of Jewish exiles. Wherever you land, don't be passive about that place. Susa was supposed to be a better place because God's people were there. And that's the same for us. Wherever we land, whether it's Worcester or Wayne County or where you move somewhere else, don't be passive to your city. Worcester is supposed to be a better place because our church is here. And all the other towns in Wayne County the same. Both Mordecai and Esther sought good for their city and for their people at the same time. They lived in the tension. Our people are in this land, but this land matters too. Let's begin with Mordecai. First and foremost, Mordecai warned the king of his impending assassination, which is a really good thing for this city. Esther 2. 
21 and 23. We're going to start reading some Esther here. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men, who, the men were hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai did not have a responsibility to King Ahasuerus, but he heard of a plot to assassinate him, and it was the right thing to do to tell him. And so Mordecai sought the welfare of the city by not letting his king get assassinated. I mean, they were trying to... I mean, an assassination of the king is an overthrow of power in government and probably change. And so just that simple piece of Mordecai telling the king about this assassination was a good thing. Another way that he sought the welfare of the city is that Mordecai got involved in the work. Now, he's a Jewish exile, but he wasn't a passive refugee. Probably with the help, help of Esther as the new queen, Mordecai became an official of the city. When he heard of the plot to assassinate the king, it says that he was at the king's gate. And now the Bible's not extremely clear how he became an official, but nonetheless, Mordecai, an exiled Jewish man, became an official for the king in the Persian Empire. He did not let the status of exile deter him from work, working to make Susa a better place. This reminds me of Joseph. I've been reading in Genesis over the last couple months. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, and his brothers sold him to the Egyptians. Joseph could not have had a worse exile experience his brothers sold him, sold him to the Egyptians. And yet, through the sovereignty of God, in Joseph's resolve, he became the Lord of all of Egypt. Joseph was in exile, but he was intricately involved in making Egypt a better place. And Mordecai was intricately involved in his city. And God ends up using that involvement as a catalyst for the saving of his people and for the elevation of Mordecai's life. Now here's just a practical principle for us. Good things happen when you open your life to the welfare of others around you. Good things happen to you when you open yourself to the welfare of others around you. Let's look at Mordecai's reputation. In Esther chapter 10, in the very last verse of this book, we see how Esther or how Mordecai is remembered. Esther 10, verse 3. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. Mordecai was great. He was great among Persia, and he was written about 
in the history of the land as a great man because he sought the welfare of the people around him. The legacy that we leave will always be about the impact that we make to other people. And living as an exile on earth looks like seeking out the welfare of others. God is always at work, always at work in the good of those around you, and you can join him. That's a good life to me, that at the end of it, the end of it all, how I'm remembered is not necessarily of all the things I accomplished, but remembered for how much I loved the people around me. So how do we seek good for our city? Practically, one of my suggestions is to creatively find ways to be involved in the local community. So now there's this tension. We can seek good for our people at the church, and we can seek good for our city. So we creatively find ways to be involved in our local community, and we creatively find ways to be involved in our church. Wherever you are is meant to be a better place because you're there. We're not supposed to be afraid of our communities or passive to our communities, but instead we're supposed to seek to make it a better place. One simple suggestion is to find a place regularly to be involved that's outside of our church walls. And if you're there and you have the Spirit of God with you, it's going to be a better place. The second way that we live as an exile is that we seek the welfare of our city and the people around us with sacrificial love. With sacrificial love. Let's look at Esther's main involvement in the story. Haman has cunningly plotted the eradication of all of God's people in all of Persia. He was calling for mass genocide. Haman is an example of someone who has used his power not for the good of others. He did not seek the welfare of others. He sought the welfare of himself. He was in direct opposition to God. And considering yourself more important than others, to consider yourself more important than others, is opposite of what God calls us to be. And so this edict went into the land. All 127 provinces on that certain day, all men, women, and children were going to be killed. And then you have Esther, a Jewish queen of Persia. And she's faced with the most extreme task she's ever been faced, for, faced with. She has to tell the king that she is Jewish. And then she has to beg him for mercy for all of her people. Now we talked about this before, but... If you approach the king without direct permission, and this included the queen, the penalty was death. And so Esther was not in a life or death situation for her people. She was in a death or death situation. She either approached the king and was going to be executed for her defiance, or she would stay silent and wait until the day of reckoning and all of her people in the land would be killed. So we pick up the story in Esther 4. Esther 4, 10 through 14. This is how Esther sacrificially loved. Esther 4, 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak, 
and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, and this is her plea, this is her plea to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. See what she's saying there? I wasn't given the golden scepter, and so I can't go, Mordecai. And then Mordecai, they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, so as the queen, that you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai was calling on Esther to recognize that she had the only opportunity in all of the land to influence the king this way. And she first resists the call. She says to Mordecai, do you not know that I will be killed if I go and ask? And Mordecai leans on her a little bit. Esther, do you not know that God will save his people without you? But your immediate family will not be spared. So Esther is compelled to sacrificially offer her life for the sake of others. Here's her response. The end of verse 16, she says this. I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther has decided to literally become a living sacrifice for her people. For Esther, this was a bold commitment that she was making. I'm going to do what I can, and if I die, well, then I die. This is the opposite of personal preservation. Seeking the good of others above her own. She was in complete contrast to Haman. And we, as exiles, looking towards our permanent home in heaven, are able to consider others more valuable than ourselves. And that's what it looks like, that we have this mentality. Now, we're not put in the extreme situation that if we go do something to help other people, we're probably going to be killed for it. But to live as a living sacrifice, and Eric said it at the beginning of service, to live as a living sacrifice is to offer yourself up for the good of other people. It's doing something that may be hard for you for the sake of the benefit of others. One of the major themes of the book of Esther is that you are essential to the life of the people around you. And you are essential to the city. You are essential to the city. 
into the life of the people around you. We're not supposed to be afraid of it. We're supposed to embrace it. So there's divine sovereignty. Mordecai said that God would accomplish his work without Esther. But there's also human responsibility. Esther's family wouldn't make it without her. You are essential to the life of the people around you. And if you know that, and you believe that, and we live that way, then your intentional move towards others will not be in vain. How do we live as citizens of heaven while on earth? We seek the welfare of the place that we live with sacrificial love. Esther being willing to sacrifice her life for her people is just a dim picture of the greatest sacrifice. Jesus, who had no home, no home, became the sacrifice for you. And he chose to do it. He said that no man sends me to the cross, but I lay down my life for my people. Jesus sought the good of others with sacrificial love while making his place wherever he was better because he was there. And it's possible for us to do that too with Jesus modeling and motivating us to do it. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.